This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.com. I would invite you to open your Bibles with me. This morning for our Old Testament text, we will look at uh, two verses from Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, and then we will find our sermon text in Hebrews 9. But first, Leviticus 16, verses 15 and 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of all their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent a meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. And now Hebrews chapter 9. We will start in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings Regulations for the body imposed until the time of the Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if they sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, 
so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will take effect, takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with, with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, not to deal with the sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Good morning. Got word this week that Doreen Metzger passed away. And so there, um, at this point, it doesn't look like there will be a service for uh, the church. It will just be for the family. But we would uh, cover your prayers for them as they uh, work through this loss. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare for our sermon. Heavenly Father, we do come before you, and Lord, we know that you are a, a loving God. We know that you are a God who extends grace and mercy, as we are the beneficiaries of that grace and mercy. We're thankful for the gift of Jesus. We're thankful for the hope we have in him of salvation we're thankful for his giving himself on a cross we deserved, his blood being shed, and ultimately the benefits that are ours because of that. Lord, we thank you for the hope we have that this life is not all there is. We know that we are saved, and in being saved, we have a place with you, a place that you've prepared. And Lord, we're thankful that for Doreen, we're thankful for the fact of the good news of the gospel and the hope that is there. Lord, there are many in this room who have suffered loss of loved ones, and we know that death is a hard reality of this life, and yet we know there is hope in Christ. And so, God, we pray for that hope and that encouragement for Doreen's family. 
We pray that you would encourage them and strengthen them even this hour. We pray as your people, as we gather in your house under your word, on your day, we pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened, that we would be filled as you promised through your word. Promise, O Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would teach us, that you would direct us, you would empower us. I pray, Lord, that you would protect my mouth, that I would not say more nor less than you've given me to say, but that I would be faithful to your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. You ever watched something and it left you wanting more, more information? Uh, you start to ask questions in your head like, how did they get there in the first place? Or why was he doing that? What was he really up to? Or what happened to them after the show ended? Have you ever been in that situation? I find myself there often in watching movies or especially documentaries. I want more. I want more information. Sometimes the only way you can truly understand something is to get the full story. Something that covers the past, the present, and yes, even the future. As a Detroit Lions fan, the only way you can truly appreciate the wins more recently is to know the past, the struggles of the past, the long, the barren past. Therefore, you begin to celebrate the present, and you're actually hopeful in the future because of that. But even with the Detroit Lions, we really don't know the future. Yet in our text here this morning... The writer of Hebrews is doing something. He's doing something that he's able to do because of the assurance that comes in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He's giving us a complete look at a complete salvation. Let me say that again. He's giving us a complete look at a complete salvation. As you remember last week, we saw how much better the new covenant was than the old. Now, in keeping with this message, the writer of Hebrews continues to stress why the Hebrew Christian should not rush back to the old covenant of grace, but he's going to do this as he looks at their past, at their present, and yes, even their future, all wrapped up in the covenant of grace. So regarding the past, We notice in just chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, he really begins to unpack the limitations of the Old Covenant. He does this by looking at a ritual of the past specifically aimed at the earthly sanctuary. The writer of Hebrews takes us back to the sanctuary of old, the, the tabernacle, the place where we see the covenant of grace in the Old Covenant at work. It's a reminder that the Old Covenant had regulations, we're told in verse 1, regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, the earthly sanctuary. This sanctuary was where the people of the Old Testament would meet to worship God. But this was more importantly where they would meet God. Yet these regulations included a structure, a design structure, and very specific services. Structure and services. That was the regulations. First, the writer of Hebrews considers the structure of the tabernacle. In verses 1 through 5, as we mentioned last week, we actually understand that this earthly sanctuary was a mirror 
of the heavenly sanctuary. But this earthly sanctuary was just as the Lord had commanded. We saw in Exodus 39 last week this phrase, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Just as the Lord commanded Moses. Everything they made was just as God had commanded because it was to be a picture of the heavenly sanctuary. God was the architect. He was the designer of this earthly sanctuary. And it was to be patterned after a greater heavenly sanctuary. As Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5 explains, it serves as a copy, a shadow of heavenly things. But this structure included two main sections. Many of you in your study Bibles have pictures of the tabernacle. Maybe you've seen pictures in storybooks as a child. There's a picture of basically a big rectangle that is cut, in a sense, uh, in half. It, it's, it, in the front is called the holy place. In the back of that rectangle is the most holy place. The two are divided by a curtain. Within this holy place and most holy place and surrounding this tabernacle were furniture and utensils that were used for worship. In our text this morning, he names a few. He talks of the lampstand. He talks of the table of bread, of presence. He talks of the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. Then he begins to cover what's in the Ark of the Covenant, a jar of manna. Aaron's rod that budded, as well as the tablets of the covenant. And in all of this, he's picturing for us the ritual in the structure. The details as they mirror something far greater than themselves. And yet these structures had limitations. The limitation in the sanctuary was simply that it was a shadow It wasn't the real heavenly sanctuary. Another limitation of the structure was the divide. The divide that is illustrated by a curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place, indicating a limited access in worship. The structure had limits. But not only the structure... Even the service of the tabernacle was regulated. We're reminded by the writer of Hebrews that regarding the holy place, the priests, not the people, would go in. The priests would go in performing their ritualistic duties. Their tasks were things like replacing the showbread. Their tasks included the lampstand to continual burning. Their their tasks included the burning of incense, which was a picture of the offering of prayers. And this was to be done twice a day. But into the most holy place, not even the priests were allowed to go, but only the high priest. And this only once a year. The high priest would enter on the Day of Atonement, the day of covering the mercy seat with blood, Leviticus 16 says that the high priest would enter and he would bring the blood of a bull for himself and his sins. He would bring the blood of a goat for the people and their sins. And he would do this ritualistically once a year. Verse 8 goes on to say, one person, 
once a year, entering the most holy place, describing in verse 8 that the Holy Spirit, what he was really up to was revealing the closed nature of approaching God in the Old Covenant. Only one person, once a year, was allowed to have access. The closed nature, however, ended in the Gospel age. The closed nature ended in the Gospel age. That's what verse 9 is celebrating. See, in verse 10, the writer then illustrates how these sacrifices were just outward ceremonies. They were dealing with ceremonially uncleanliness. They couldn't deal with real moral uncleanness of the conscience. But yet there's a mention of a time of reformation, a time of newness. The new covenant is alluded to here. And all that is promised in Ezekiel 36 of a new heart and new ability and new desires all captured in what would be provided when the new covenant came. This time we're discussing here is an important time. A time of access. A time of communion for all God's people. Not just one. Not just some. But all his children. Yet even in this service of the tabernacle, we see limitations. Limitations regarding who had access. The priests, not people, had access to the holy place. And only the high priest himself, not even the priest, had access to the most holy place. And we see limitation of service in that they had to repeat the ritual again and again and again and again. They had to keep replacing the showbread. They had to keep making sure that the, the light was, was flickering, that the lampstand hadn't gone out. They had to continue to make sure that the incense twice a day was present. Again and again, once a year, the high priest would have to enter the shedding of the blood of the bull and the goat. Repeated rituals. And finally, there was a limitation in the rituals that never truly cleansed the conscience, just ceremonially cleansed the outward man. But then we see the writer turn to that new reformation. He turns his attention to the change that has occurred. In verses 11 through 22, he begins to direct us to the blessing of redemption by the mediating of the last will and testament. He begins to focus on the Christ, the high priest, the one who had come. Notice verse 11, the phrase, good things have come. Good things have come. This is a reference to that gospel age. This is a reference to the benefits of the high priest Christ. Good things is a reference to a clean conscience. Good things is the idea of a new heart. The idea of good things is access to God. After all, isn't this what each and every one of us ultimately needs? More than we need money. More than we even need breath itself. We need God. 
And this is provided in the finished work of Jesus. According to verse 11, it says, Greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands. This is what Jesus provides. Verse 12 goes on to explain that where he entered once for all, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, he secures eternal redemption. And what about verse 14? Where he begins to unpack the offering up of himself, describing this high priest who actually is our sacrifice, was without blemish to God. Christ had lived a sinless life. The importance of that. That he walked amongst us. He he lived a sinless life. And yet, even if he lived a sinless life, without his dying, we would be a people most miserable. The blemished Lamb of God came and purified our conscience. I love the line in verse 14 where it says, from dead works to serve the living God. How often people out in society think they're doing good things. But ultimately before God, it's sinful because they're doing them apart from Him. The necessity of being in relationship with God that Christ provides by His blood is so important. See, we are saved by Christ from sin unto good works. Christ, therefore, is truly the mediator of the new covenant. And in verse 15, it's described, it is said, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Notice the blessing that's captured there. The eternal inheritance. The lasting inheritance. Our internal inheritance is connected to the death of Christ. According to verse 15, since a death has occurred that redeems them. In verses 16 and 17, it goes on to make clear for a will to be invoked, death is necessary. In verse 18, it actually makes the statement, not even the first covenant is inaugurated without blood. Covenant itself is the bond in blood. The focus here is not simply that Jesus came, but the writer is now zeroing in on the mission of Jesus. His blood, His death, His dying. Why did Jesus come? The point of this is that the blood of Christ is necessary. Hear Jesus' own words as He institutes the Lord's table. In Luke 22, verse 20, he says, And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, imagine Jesus holding it up, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in what? In my blood. The blood is essential. Jesus came to bleed and die so that we can be made holy. The new covenant, friends, is mediated by the blood of Christ. And Christians have captured this for centuries. They've captured it in their hymns. One of the famous hymns is, There is a fountain filled with blood. This hymn goes this way, There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, 
and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains? Or how about, and can it be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain for me who Him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, should die for me? Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, should die for me? The truth of the matter is, we've seen over the years more theologically progressive churches begin to remove blood from the songs of their hymnals. They began to walk away and and to state things like, these songs of blood are not happy. These songs of blood really have no benefit to the congregation. But church, hear me, the real issue is that they do not believe that we are saved and secured by the blood of Christ. Do you? See, as Bible-believing Christians, we do believe and understand that we are secured in the blood of Jesus. Jesus' death was required so that we could, in fact, be saved. The writer of Hebrews brings us to the forefront in verse 22 when he makes the statement, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So church, I ask you this morning, are you trusting in the blood of Christ? Are you trusting in the forgiveness that only comes through Christ's sacrifice? Are you trusting in Christ's work? On the cross. The writer then moves us to the benefits that we possess in verses 23 through 28. And he does this in two fashions those benefits we have presently, and those benefits we'll have in the future. Look at verse 23. He says, For Christ has entered. Notice the emphasis there. He's entered. He's, it's past tense. It's, he, it has happened. Not into holy places made with hands. Not to the old earthly sanctuary, which were just copies of the true things. But into the heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Church, this is a reference to the importance of the ascension. This is an importance on what Christ is doing even now there at the right hand of the Father as He's making intercession for us now. In verses 25 through 26, the writer of Hebrews says this, Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest entered the holy places every year with blood not of His own. For then he should have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The emphasis is that Christ has died once for all time. And there, sitting in the heavenly sanctuary, making intercession for us, we know 
that we are secured. One of the rager reasons we do not hold to what many friends in our own communities hold to regarding communion as a mass is because we truly believe that Christ has died once for all. Christ is not offered again and again and again each and every Sunday. But it is secured for all time. And therefore we have confidence of the salvation He has purchased for us. But this good news is also looking to the future. In verses 27 through 28, we read this. Just as it is appointed for, me, for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. We know that in the future, every man will die. This is part of the fall. And we know that after death, Scripture tells us of a judgment. Those who are covered by Jesus' blood will be those who are covered by Jesus' blood will be received into the inherit, eternal inheritance, but those who are not covered by Jesus' blood will be cast into eternal punishment. Christ has come to secure our inheritance. Christ has been offered for our sins, and the Scripture tells us a second time He will come. He has not come to just save us spiritually. But church, He has come to save us physically. Verse 28 says, Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Our salvation is complete. From beginning to end, it's secured in Christ. What the Old Testament longed to look and see in shadows and types in, in earthly sanctuaries made by hand, with furniture and utensils used to teach them the rituals and importance of blood, was written down by Christ in His own blood, in which He secured our salvation complete. This is the good news of the Gospel. And this is what the writer of Hebrews would be turning the heads of those who were running back to the old way, saying, do not... Do not run back to rituals of the past. Cling to Jesus. For our sin has been taken care of by the blood of Christ. This new covenant has been mediated by His blood. We have access because of Him. We have no reason to turn back. We have no reason to run to our former rituals. For they cannot save us. But Christ has for in Christ, there is no limitations. For in Christ, there is only a secured inheritance that He provides by His blood. Let's pray. Father, as we just reflect on these truths and the, the blessing of what Christ provides and the hope of all that we have, the security in Him, we thank You for the good news. We thank You for the reality of the Gospel age we live in, that Christ has already come. 
The Old Testament saints longed and looked forward to him. But Lord, we look back at him and all that he has accomplished. May our trust be in him and in him alone we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people say. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.com.